Last week, Jesus prayed over and picked out his 12 apostles. And this week, he is sending them out, out on a short-term missions trip that probably only lasted, from what we know, a couple of weeks to proclaim to Israel that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But before he does so, he gives his newly appointed apostles a pep talk. Almost like a talk that you get before a high school uh, football game or something like that. And Enso is detailing what this trip is about, what they're going to do, the things they can expect, and the character that will be required of them to show as they go out, as they are, as, and what it takes to be sent out by God, as the very word apostle means sent ones or sent out. So that's exactly what they're doing in this passage. And this is the second major discourse of Jesus Christ in the gospel according to Matthew. The first, of course, being um, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, There's five in total, and we'll get through them as we continue throughout our journey. And it, it should be said, this particular one here in chapter 10, the church is eternally grateful for. This, this pep talk is recorded or alluded to in the other Gospels, but it's really fleshed out in the Gospel of Matthew. And I say we are grateful because the church has learned so much from this discourse. Missions organizations are shaped by this discourse. Um, and how they approach it, our understanding of what missions is, what our priorities should be. And... So there's still wisdom to be gleaned from to this day. Now, naturally, the question should emerge, what what does Jesus' instructions for a specific missions trip have to do with the church 2,000 years later? And more importantly, what does that have to do with me today? Well, I'm glad that you guys asked. That's a great question. (laughs) Well, obviously, some of these instructions are specific to this trip. But as we go about, uh, as we go through this, er everything listed here indicates a principle, an eternal principle for the church that we can glean from and that every one of us can apply to our lives today. Well, what do you mean? How can I apply something about a missionary to my life today? Well, that's because you guys are missionaries. Don't look at me funny. That's who you guys are. That's what we, every one of us are called to be. Let me put it, whether or not we think about it that way, it's, it reflects reality. Uh, here's what I mean. As a Christian, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Now, you might live in this world to have a citizenship here in this country. You might even love your country, but you have a higher citizenship in heaven, even more so than what you have here on earth. Now look, I, I was raised to love this country. <laughs> uh, I was, I, I'm an Eagle Scout. I was even born on the 4th of July. I'm as red, white, and blue as you can be. <laughs> but even so, even my identity as an American is second to my identity as a member of Christ's kingdom. As a follower of Jesus Christ, that is the core of my identity. Everything else is secondary. 
even the things I really do love and believe in. (laughs) And I take that status as an ambassador of the kingdom of God everywhere I go, whether it be to school or work or to the supermarket. I'm taking that title with me. When I worked in a warehouse, I was God's missionary to that warehouse. Whether I liked or wanted that title or not, that was what God's calling in my life was. You know, many people at that particular warehouse, they weren't going to church, they weren't listening to Christian radio, they, they didn't have any, um, any avenue to have the gospel shared with them. So, that was where God gave me opportunities to just simply share what I believe. You know, I'm not walking in there with a bullhorn open air preaching to the warehouse floor, but I would have conversations with people about what I believed as, the God, as God opened up those opportunities. Now, I didn't rob my employer's time. I didn't want to be a bad steward of that. You know, I, I, I didn't want to make God look bad like he makes Christians lazy and all we do is preach the gospel and we don't work. But as I had opportunities, I shared the good news. And God has each one of you guys where you are with your circle of friends and your family members for a reason. Because you're able to reach people I'll never be able to reach. Because let's be honest, it's very unlikely that you're going to invite me to your next family barbecue, your next work party or something like that, your next uh, you know, company party, so I can pass out gospel tracts and open air preach. I don't think that's going to happen. But that's why you're there. You're able to talk to those people I'll never meet in my whole lifetime, even if they only live a few blocks away from here. Now, those are people I don't have the opportunity to listen to, to speak to. So, at least not yet. So we all have an opportunity. We're all missionaries of Christ wherever it is that God sends us. So, as we begin this section... As we start taking this apart, avoid the temptation to tune out thinking that this passage is written for somebody else. It ought to apply to every single one of us this morning. Especially as we understand the principles that Jesus is laying for us in this passage. And the first detail Jesus gives us is the location that this missions trip is going to take place. And he does so beginning in verse 5, where he says, um, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Before the gospel could go forth to the ends of the earth, as God calls us to do, it had to go to Israel first. Why? Why limit it to Israel? Why not try to get it out as far as you can, as fast as you can? Well, because the Jews were God's chosen people. (laughs) Think about that God brought the Messiah from the Jews. We know he's the Messiah from the Hebrew scriptures. These were the people who had the oracles and prophecies of God who told them that the Messiah was coming. They told them that they should expect him around this time. These people, these were the people who ought to have known the Messiah was coming and to be ready. So the message ought to have gone to them first. 
As our first reading said in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is to the Jew first, but also the Greek. And I think that Jesus, even as he's saying this in Matthew chapter 10, he had Romans 1.16 in mind. I think he had the missionary journeys of Paul in mind. I thought he had South Amboy in mind as he said these words, knowing that the gospel would eventually go forth, being springboarded from Israel to all the world eventually. But it started in this place where the people were most primed and most ready to receive the good news of the gospel. As as I mentioned before, they had the scriptures. They ought to have known what the Messiah would look like when he arrived. Which, by the way, is why I'm personally so passionate about sharing the gospel with one very large unreached people group. Christians. We don't think about it in those terms, but many Christians don't even understand what the gospel really is. Many people have been raised in the church, but never quite had it put together for them what the gospel actually is. You know, I I talk to people who say they've been raised in church their whole lives, and I'll ask them a question, just a simple clarifying question. And I say, well, if, um, well, if, uh, if, um, how do, how do you get to heaven? As simple as that. When you die someday, and we're all going to die someday, and you go, and you go to heaven, why would God let you into his kingdom? And most of the time, people surprise me still to this day. They say their answer is, well, I'm a good person. I do all these good things. I help with this. I help with that. I try not to do all of these other bad things. And that's their answer. And I have to correct them. Because nobody is saved by being a good person. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that there is none who does good, not even one. Nobody is righteous in light of the law. Because as good as we all try to be, and as good as many of our motives are, none of us are perfect. None of us do the, all of the good that we want to do and stay away from all the evil that we attempt to stay away from. So no, I'm not saved because I'm a good person. I'm saved because I'm a forgiven person. That's why. That God is going to embrace me on that day with wide open arms and let me in Not because I've earned it, (laughs) far from the truth, but because Jesus loved me so much that he fully paid the price for my entry ticket on the cross, shedding his blood to pay for my sins. And that all I have to do is turn from my sins, which the Bible calls repentance, And believe in my heart what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Believing he went to the cross for me. And by doing that, I can have complete confidence of where I'm going to go someday. Not because of my works, which are constantly changing. But because of the cross. A fixed point in history where it was done for me. Because a life based off of works, you never have assurance. You could live your whole life being a good person. In the eyes of the world, mind you. I could live my whole life doing good things, but do something really bad towards the end of my life and negate all the good work I've ever done. A works-based system offers no assurance, but Christ offers full assurance for those who know him. 
And I love taking that message to Christians especially. Watching that light bulb go off as they put it all together and realize, oh, that's it. That's what the gospel is. That's why it's good news. You mean going, being saved and being a Christian isn't about, you know, wearing really warm clothes on a hot Sunday afternoon and coming into church every Sunday? No, it's far more wonderful than that. And so we too have people we can more readily take the gospel to, can't we? To the Jew first today often refers to other Christians who can who are familiar with the concept of God, who are familiar with the concept of who the Messiah is, who might even know his name is Jesus, but not quite put it all together yet. So that is the location Jesus has sent us to. But the next is the message and the credentials of the mission, which Jesus covers in verse 7, where he says, And proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Let's stop there before we finish the verse. But the message is simple. Going back to uh, chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message of good news that we just talked about a few moments ago. But simply telling his disciples, cover the land of Israel, saying that the Messiah is here. Get ready. But the question arises, why should anyone believe their report? Why should anyone believe just because somebody says the Messiah is coming, why should they believe that he actually is? There were plenty of false messiahs, even back then. Which is what brings us to the Messiah's credentials, which are his miracles that we're reading about here. Because only God can do legitimate miracles. So at the time, if somebody's proclaiming that the Messiah is here, and and somebody, the person proclaiming it, raises the dead, oh, you can have every right to believe, oh, that, this guy means what he says. Something powerful is happening. This guy means it, that the Messiah is here. But Occasionally, you know, I'll hear, oh, but John, all religions claim to do some kind of miracle. What makes this so special? Well, that's why I said before, only God can do legitimate miracles. It's true. Only biblical Christianity contains true miracles. And speaking of which, not all religions actually do make the claim to have done miracles. The Buddha never claimed to do any miracles. Similarly, even Muhammad never claimed to do any miracles. In their own words, they've said as much. I'm not knocking on them, it's simply true. But Jesus did. And even his enemies, the people who wanted to kill him, believed and complained about the miracles he was doing. They didn't deny that it was happening. They were saying, oh, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. They didn't deny that the miracles were happening. They just questioned which direction up or down that it came from, which is an incredible claim when you think about it, when you're raising the dead and healing lepers and even your enemies aren't trying to deny it. The evidence was overwhelming. 1 Corinthians 15 says that over 500 people saw the risen Christ at one time. So there's witnesses of this as well, that Jesus was doing these miracles. 
When we cover the feeding of the 5,000, that's over 5,000 witnesses that saw Jesus did miracles. But when you read about the miracles of other religions, they're vague and they're unverifiable. They don't have large numbers of witnesses like what the Bible records. So when we say that the Messiah's credentials are miracles, this really is a unique truth claim. This isn't something that is common among other religions. And interestingly enough, all the miracles Jesus lists here in this passage are ones that the ones that he said sent out the other apostles to do are ones that Jesus has already done in this gospel. Raising the dead, healing lepers, healing the sick, casting out demons. We've seen many of those in just the last two chapters, in chapters 8 and 9. Which brings to mind, as Jesus is sending them out to do these very same miracles, how Jesus concluded the last chapter when he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Up until this point, it was just Jesus doing these miracles. And now the laborers are no longer few, as the twelve are going out there doing the same things as Christ. Interesting and worth noting. The next thing Jesus lays out is his apostles' motivation. What it is, of course, and also what it ought not be. Where in verse 8 he said, he continues the verse saying, You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Continues on from there, but we'll stop there for a second. See what he's saying there. This is a short-term missions trip to spread the gospel. Not Not a business trip to make money. There's a big difference there. And that is a big principle for the church today. What's interesting is that Jesus did not make them pay to receive this gift of being able to perform these miracles. So neither should they be charging to perform them or for people to receive these healings. So there's there's no expectation of financial gain by doing ministry, that the primary focus has to be about the message, not the money. Now the Bible does teach Especially for, as, Jesus, as we have later epistles to clarify, uh, that minister, people who minister the gospel full-time or work at a church full-time, you know, it's, it's okay to receive a salary to live off of. This is different than a short-term missions trip. But the principle still applies that the goal is not to amass a personal fortune by doing ministry. That pastors aren't supposed to get filthy rich by their ministry. Nor anybody who goes into the ministry, whatever title it happens to be. Now, there there has to be a balance, of course. You don't want your pastor worried if he has the money to fix his 20-year-old car that has a broken transmission or whatever. You don't want them broke and begging constantly. But at the same time, it's even worse if he owns a Ferrari and two Jaguars at his third vacation house. That's way worse. That is way worse. And don't think I'm just making stuff up. 
That does happen. And it is gross, it is grotesque, it is, it is terrible, but it happens. And, which is sickening because pastors and elders are required by 1 Timothy 3 to be free from the love of money. So if you see a pastor living a lifestyle like that or somebody attached to a church or a missions organization living like that, mark my words, they're disqualified. They ought not to be in ministry. They should remove themselves immediately if that's the type of lifestyle that they are living. (laughs) Which, by the way, if you ever have a pastor leave a church, whether this one or any other one you guys might attend in the future, who leaves a church in order to serve at a larger church, just let them go. Just let them go. Because maybe God is legitimately calling them to do so. And in which case, we don't want to hold them back. But if the case is that they're doing it for the money, you don't want them as your current pastor anyway. Just let them go. Let it be a blessed subtraction. And the Lord will provide for his ministry in the meantime. So money is not the motivation. It ought never to be for all Christians everywhere for all time. But neither are our comforts. Where He continues the sentence in verse 10, where I'll back it up to verse 9 for context, where it says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer is... the laborer deserves his food. Again here, you shouldn't be acquiring great items, but there's, there's another more subtle point here, that Jesus is telling his disciples as they go on this temporary trip to only take the bare essentials, to travel lightly, uh, to trust God to provide for your needs in the meantime. And God backs up this promise. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus looks back on this missions trip and he, and he tells them, you know, when I sent you out with no money bag, no knapsack or extra or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. How fascinating is that? That God had fully supplied their every need on this journey. If they needed money, God supplied them money from the people that they were with. If they needed supplies, God God gave them their supplies. Clothing, you name it. They had what they needed. God miraculously provided for for what he called them to do. They were completely dependent on God, and he provided. What a concept, right? It's like we forget that God can do that. But he can, and he does, and he does all the time. If God calls you to do something, he will supply you with everything you need to do it. That's the type of situation Paul actually referred to in Philippians chapter 4, where he writes, uh, saying, that I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, most of you have heard that verse before, 
We don't always hear it in context. Most of the time we hear that verse, we think it's talking about a football game. I mean, you'll see this verse, Philippians 4.13 at the end zone. It's not actually about football games. It's not actually about accomplishing, you know, anything. It's about learning that I can be content with what I have and, that, and having confidence that God will supply everything I need. That's what it's about. But by the way, no doubt most of you might have noticed, I said a very important word leading into that. If. If God has called you for, to do something, he will supply for it. That's a very important word. Now, there was no doubt for these disciples that they were called to go on this trip. Jesus said as much in, the, in physical form, auditorially, go, do this, go, do that. So they were certain. And we must be honest, we don't usually have that kind of certainty when Jesus calls us to do something, do we? Not most of the time. But perhaps that's where we should take a cue from Jesus in this passage. As we remarked, uh, I believe it was last week, that Jesus was up all night praying before he picked his 12 disciples. He had this big ministry moment and he spent all night praying for it. Perhaps that's something the church ought to adapt as normative. Praying over these big things before just rushing in and doing things and Later tacking on, oh, I believe God wants me to do this. But I'll tell you what, though. I spent a lot of time praying over responding to the call to come to this church. I spent a lot of time in prayer over this. Because, you know, I'll be honest, you know, I had a list of reasons why I couldn't do it at the time. List of things going on in my life that was like, oh, this isn't the right season. I got too much going on. I got this work thing. I, I got this family situation. I got this medical situation. I got all this other stuff going on. There was a, a lot of obstacles going on. But I had to trust that. So I had to have assurance. Is this from the Lord? And so I spent time in prayer. I mean, I was working a second shift warehouse job at the time when it was first brought up as a possibility. And man, I, I remember one night just Driving here late in, the, late in the night, just parking in the parking lot and just praying over it. I didn't have a key, obviously, but I was just sitting out there praying over it. And God slowly gave me some assurance. No, I'm in this. This is for you. This is this. I have a plan for this. And I just trusted it and took a step of faith forward, said yes. And I'll save you the very long story that follows afterwards, but God has met me and, sit and provided for every single one of those obstacles and worries. It's a long story, I'll tell you guys sometime, but God provided every need, showed that there, I was totally overthinking it, which if you guys know me, is totally me. And God provided and I'm not going to sit here and complain and talk about the great ministry burden that it was. Because it really wasn't. God has done so many things to make, it, make being here such a blessing. One of truly the great blessings I have in my life right now is being here with you guys. And I just enjoy watching God move and watching it all work together and providing for all of these ways. So even today, when God presents some crazy ministry opportunity, I, I don't get nervous or worried about it anymore. And when I know God is in it, I just get 
interested. It's like, wow, I wonder how God's going to remove all of these obstacles. Because I know he's going to do it somehow. I couldn't tell you for the life of me how, but he's going to do it. Because that's our God. And just for clarity, you know, that has nothing to do with my great faith, what I just got done talking about. You know, I was the one who was nervous and hesitant. So I can't claim some great victory based off of my own faith. But because of the steadfast goodness of God, that's the takeaway in all of this. So the big takeaway is simply this. I'm going to have to close on this, on this note. That if you're going to do God's ministry, you got to do it God's way. You can't do your own way. You can't do it on your own principles, your own wants or your own desires. We have to do it the way God has told us to operate ministry. We should take these things that Jesus says, these principles that he's laid out for us in his word, and do church his way. Because this is still his church. Now, I hope none of you guys are confused to think this is somehow my church. It better not be. If it's up to me, it's, I have to provide for it in my own strength, in my own power, in my own wisdom. And you guys are doomed. <laughs> but if it's his ministry, oh, it's going to be good moving forward. It's going to be great. It, but it's sad to me that people keep trying to change God's design for his church. And the ministry, just in the name of modernity, for instance, now, I don't believe in tradition for the sake of tradition either. I think that leads to dead, dead churches all over our country. And that's a problem too. But because we have a, there is plenty of freedom to update our style, to update our music, to play things that are contemporary and do things that, you know, maybe people wouldn't have thought of 150 plus years ago when this church was founded. But the principles of ministry, those things never change. And it breaks my heart when people try to change it. And it surprises so many people, but it really doesn't surprise me anymore when people try to tinker and change these principles and update them and modernize them. And then the church falls apart or the church caves in under the weight of all the controversy it creates. I'm sure some of you have seen some of these documentaries of some of these fallen megachurches that have come out in recent years. And it's a tragedy, but the people who knew that they were messing around with these principles were calling some of these catastrophes 10 years plus in advance. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get five or 10 more in the next five to 10 years. It's, it's sad, but I'm getting off topic. Let's... Let's ne never let that be what happens here in South Amboy. What, I'm not talking about being a mega church or not a mega church. It's not about the numbers. It's about the principles. Let us never lose sight of that. Let's always be the church that is committed to do God's ministry, God's way, following his principle for his ministry. Because prayerfully, this place will always remain his church. Thanks be to God.